0: The second impeachment from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds. The U.S. House voted to impeach Donald Trump for the second time in his presidency, making him the first president ever to be impeached. Twice. 10 Republicans joined 222 Democrats to impeach the 45th president. We'll cover this. And David Quammen, he is a New York Times best selling science writer. I talked to him about his book Spillover, about animal infections and the next human pandemic. Also, more countries joined the international race in. The News Nerds Geographical Location Challenge. This and more on this week's episode of News Nerds. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and please stay tuned. (coughs) The U.S. House convened today to impeach Donald Trump for inciting a mob to breach the Capitol building last Wednesday. House members debated impeachment on a tight schedule. As House members were allowed time to speak, some Republican members changed their nay vote to yay. Ten Republicans in all voted to impeach President Trump, while 197 said no. One such member was Liz Cheney. She voted yes. She provided her opinion in a statement that said, quote, Much more will become clear in coming days and weeks, but what we know now is enough. The president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the president. Unquote. The other nine Republicans in the House that chose to vote yes are as follows. Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington, John Katko of New York, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, Peter Meher of Michigan, Dan Newhouse of Washington, Tom Rice of South Carolina, Fred Upton of Michigan, and David Valadeo of California, California. Perhaps these minds were changed because of some of the speeches that the Democratic Party delivered. Some speeches stood out to me from the long day of debate. One of them is Nancy Pelosi's. Let's hear a clip of that now.
1: And present danger to the nation that we all love. Since the presidential election in November, an election the president lost, he has repeatedly held about the uh, lied about the outcome, sowed self-serving doubt about democracy, and unconstitutionally sought to influence state officials to repeal reality. And then came that day of fire we all experienced. The president must be impeached and I believe the president must be convicted by the Senate, a constitutional remedy that will ensure that the Republic will be safe from this man who was so resolutely determined to tear down the things that we hold dear and that hold us together. It gives me no pleasure to say this, it breaks my heart. It should break your heart, should break all of our hearts For your presence in this hallowed chamber is testament to your love for our country, for America, and to your faith in the work of our founders to create a more perfect union. Those insurrectionists were not patriots. They were not part of a political base to be catered to and managed. They were domestic terrorists and justice must prevail. But they did not appear out of a vacuum. They were sent here, sent here by the president with words such as a cry, to fight like hell. Words matter. Truth matters. Accountability matters. In his public exhortations to him, the president saw the insurrectionists not as a face, the foes of freedom, as they are, but as a means to a terrible goal, the goal of his personally clinging to power.
0: There were some major issues that were brought up by both sides, including the mob that stormed the Capitol last week and trying to unite the country. The Democrats' argument was that Trump urged a mob of his supporters to attack the Capitol. They also went on to state that Trump would not concede his election that he lost in. They argued that these actions were impeachable offenses. Republicans countered those arguments with their own argument that these impeachment trials would not unite the country but divide the country. Republicans also argued that Trump's actions did not directly incite the mob to violently break into the Capitol. They said the rioters were there on their own accord. All of this comes after another day of debating, which was yesterday, Tuesday. With Democrats in the House urging Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office because, in their opinion, he is unable to carry out his constitutional commitment as president. The 25th Amendment allows the Vice President, with a majority of the President's cabinet, to remove the president from office, making the vice president the new president. If the president objects to his or her vice president, he or she may send a letter to Congress stating this. Then Congress votes to either remove the president via the 25th Amendment as the vice president proposed, or keep the president if the vice president's concerns were not valid. Republicans did not like the proposition of invoking the 25th Amendment. They said, that the Democrats were forcing this decision on Pence and pressuring him to invoke the 25th Amendment. The House has no authority to influence any step of the 25th Amendment except for the case in which the President states himself fit for office and the House votes on the issue. Democrats strongly urged Pence, but did not demand that he invoke the 25th Amendment. As these proceedings were taking place, Mike Pence wrote a letter to the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi stating that he would not invoke the 25th Amendment. The next step in in impeaching Trump is to bring the trial to the Senate. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader from the Republican side, has said that the trial will take place after Joe Biden is inaugurated and when Trump isn't even in office. One step that has been pushed for by Democrats is the vote on whether Trump should ever hold public office again. If a majority of Senate members vote to do this, Trump would no longer be allowed to hold office. Another thing that has come up in the Senate is whether Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, will vote to impeach Trump. Last time Trump was impeached, McConnell voted no, along with every other Republican in the Senate except for Utah Senator Mitt Romney. This time, McConnell has said that he will decide which way to vote based on the impeachment trial debate. If McConnell will, in fact, vote yes for impeachment, more fellow Republicans may join him. This impeachment is the closest to the transition of power, and this is the first president to be impeached twice. This is all in an unprecedented time with the COVID-19 virus or, or a pandemic, uh, a mob that broke into the capital, and a president that will not concede his presidential election, which he lost. Let's now go to my interview with David Quammen. He is a science writer, and in this interview, we talk about his book Spillover, Animal Infections, and the next human pandemic. is a writer of numerous books, including Spillover, about animal infections and pandemics, and he joins me now. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Ezra. Nice to be with you on News Nerds.
0: So were you at all surprised when this COVID pandemic arose? I mean, you actually said in the book that the next big pandemic could come from a market in southern China, and that's exactly what happened. So were you you at all surprised?
2: The only thing that surprised me was how unprepared we were for this pandemic, how unprepared the United States was and how unprepared the world was to deal with a a new virus, a coronavirus coming out of a wild animal, probably a bat. As you said, eight years ago when I published the book Spillover, I predicted that the next pandemic, I predicted not because I was prescient, but because I was listening to scientists and they were predicting. So I conveyed their predictions and sort of created a consensual version of that, an, an overview, and the overview was that yes, there will be a new pandemic and it will be caused by a new virus coming out of a wild animal, possibly a bat, what kind of a virus, possibly a coronavirus, where, possibly in or near a market somewhere where wild animals are being sold live for food. Now we now know that this pandemic probably did not begin in the Huanan wholesale seafood market in the city of Wuhan, but began earlier than that. And that it was already circulating in the city of Wuhan during the month of November of 2019. And then some infected person, not some infected wild animal carried it into the market. And there was a super spreader event in the market. That's the story that we think we have now.
0: Are you going to write about the pandemic or this coronavirus when, when you can?
2: I, I am going to write about it, and I have been writing about it. I've, I've written three op-ed pieces for the New York Times and two stories for the New Yorker magazine this year, all connected to the coronavirus. And my book publisher, Simon & Schuster in New York, has asked me to set aside the book that I was working on for them and do a book on COVID-19. Usually I like to write books about things that nobody else is writing books about. And this is one where everybody's writing books about it. And I have to figure out how to write a unique book, a valuable book in the midst of a stampede of books. So I'm, I think I know how to do that. I think I've got an idea. It's difficult. It's going to be different from things I've done in the past. Travel is so difficult now and travel is usually very important. But I, th- I think I have a concept.
0: The wet markets... In Wuhan, China, I didn't know about that new report about it circulating around, but could wet markets could they be the the uh, the 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 start of another pandemic or epidemic or just a small yes
2: small yes. yes these wet markets are very dangerous when you bring wild animals in alive to a food market and put them in cages stacked up next to or even on top of other kinds of animals like chickens and ducks and pigs that are being sold for food and near tables where seafood is is being sold and and meat is being butchered, then you create a very dangerous situation for the possible passage of new viruses from those wild animals into the domestic animals and maybe into the humans who are shopping there. China has, uh, has taken some moves to close down the wild animal live for food trade since this began, it remains to be seen whether they will enforce those restrictions, but anywhere in the world where this happens, um, it creates a danger of new viruses getting into the human population. Because all wild animals carry viruses, viruses that we don't know about. Viruses are everywhere, and if a virus manages just to, to tumble, to spill over from a wild animal into human, and discovers that it can reproduce and spread, then you have a whole new viral disease. It's very dangerous.
0: So the coronavirus vaccines, both from Pfizer, Moderna, and in England, AstraZeneca, as those are distributed there, especially in large populations like China, the US, I don't know, India, as those are distributed, one idea has come up about distribution. This is to give one dose instead of two to people. So from your viewpoint, would only giving somebody one dose of the vaccine, would that be a good idea?
2: Well, again, I preface that I'm not an expert. I'm just a science writer who, who listens carefully to the scientists and the scientists that I trust right now are saying that, um, are, are counseling caution against that idea. The notion that uh, maybe we can get away with one dose and then we can spread the doses around to more people. The, the data that have been gathered from the phase three trials showing that at least the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are 95% effective, those data are all based on two doses. So we don't know how effective one dose would be. And and therefore, I don't think that we should, um, uh, we should rush to do that. I think we should listen to the scientists who are caust- cautioning against that and simply do everything we can to produce more doses of the vaccines and get them distributed more and that hasn't happened very well because we've got such a dysfunctional federal government
0: so there was also another speculation about where covid came from it wasn't as as big of a theory but some say it, it might have leaked from a lab in wuhan which would be more plausible the 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 super spreader or the the leak from the lab
2: well, I think it's more plausible that it came from a wild animal, probably almost certainly a bat, and um, got into people and spread naturally. There is, as you say, this accusation or this, this suspicion that it leaked from a laboratory at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where a scientist named Li Shi was working on coronaviruses, was, was finding coronavirus genomes in bats, and was warning the world for the last 15 years about the dangers of coronaviruses spilling over from bats so now this is a, this accusation against her lab is a case of you know wanting to kill the messenger she was warning about how dangerous this is uh, and now there some people are saying well this thing probably leaked from her lab because she was she was gathering these dangerous viruses i've read a lot about that i'm going to continue reading about that we need more information there is no ironclad proof either way at this point, but there is certainly beyond circumstantial evidence that uh, this pandemic was recognized in Wuhan and the Wuhan Institute of Virology is there. So that's a coincidence. Oh, that's suspicious. Beyond that sort of circumstantial evidence, there is no evidence that this came from her lab or anyone else's and the molecular evolutionary virologists in the world that I trust the most are saying, we look at the genome of this virus. We look at the genome of the bat viruses that are most closely related to it. They are 50 years of evolutionary distance from it. Somewhere out there is another virus that was the direct ancestor of this one, but this does not at all look like a virus that was engineered in a lab or that escaped from a lab because there is no evidence that this particular virus was ever in a lab in Wuhan.
0: So before we go on to my questions about Spillover, you've also worked at National Geographic. What was your job at National Geographic?
2: Well, I was a, my title was Contributing Writer. I was, I was essentially not exactly a freelance writer, but I wasn't a staff person, I was on a contract. So I was called to write stories often about wildlife, often about Africa. Uh, My arrangement with them was that I would write three major stories a year. And I did that for, I wrote for them. Well, I'm still writing for them. I have a story coming out in the next month or so. But I've started writing for them in 1999. So I've written for them a little over 20 years. I don't know how many stories, 30 or 35 stories maybe. But generally they wanted me to write about wildlife, conservation, landscape wild places and science so they would send me off to walk through jungles with biologists it was a great a great gig i walked through some crazy crazy places with some great biologists
0: so there's an amazing amazing research that that went into this book and you talk to the people involved in these cases of disease what was the process of reaching this, of researching the spillover book
2: well, Spillover took me about five years and I did a lot of travel. I traveled to China, the Congo, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Australia, Butte, Montana, I, I can't Berlin. I can't remember all the places that I traveled to, mostly with scientists who study viruses that fall out of wild animals, who study this subject of, it's called zoonotic diseases. Uh, animal infections that are transmissible to humans. And that's what the book is about, Spillover. Animal infections that are transmissible to humans and can cause pandemics. So I spent probably three years out of the five years traveling around the world, climbing into caves in China, climbing onto rooftops in Bangladesh with scientists who were trapping bats to sample them for dangerous viruses. Or, Or that we're trying to tranquilize gorillas to look for evidence of Ebola virus or Sampling fruit bats in Australia to find evidence of of Hendra virus. It was very interesting. These are heroic, courageous people, and it was uh, a lot of fun and and exciting to go into the field, into the wilds with them and watch them do their work. And then I came home and I spent two years writing the book.
0: As I I read more, I was like, this is some creepy stuff. You must you must have been really into these to the the topic of infectious disease. What was your inspiration
2: for Spillover? Well, you know, my interest, Ezra, started about probably 25 years ago, maybe more, when I first read about Ebola virus, this terrible virus that kills people and makes them very sick in Africa, usually in African villages. And no one knew where this virus came from. It had to live in some wild animal. That's what they call the reservoir host. That's where a virus lives when it's not infecting humans. It spills out of its reservoir host and gets into humans and then causes an outbreak. So Ebola was causing these terrible outbreaks and nobody knew which animal it came from. And then National Geographic commissioned me to walk across the Congo with a biologist who was doing an epic survey hike across the last great dense forests of Central Africa, including the Congo Basin. And we walked through Ebola habitat and we knew it was Ebola habitat because there had been a human outbreak on the edge of this forest block. So for 10 days, we were in our sandals slogging through the swamp and the forest in this block where we knew Ebola was there somewhere in the forest. And that's what got me really interested in Ebola, reading about the dynamics, the reservoir host that it lives in, the spillover into humans, the the question of, of how it adapts to a new host, humans instead of bats or whatever. And I realized that this was all ecology and evolutionary biology. It was the ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses. And I had been writing about ecology and evolutionary biology of big creatures. And so it was natural for me to make that transition and say, oh, okay, now I wanna write about the ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses.
0: You mentioned that there's a, a, something called a reservoir host, and then the reservoir host goes on uh, um, to, to spark this chain of events. What, what is this chain, and how can the reservoir host infect a human? And then there's another, okay. there's another like an hendrovirus. It had to be transmitted to another animal before, before infecting humans. What is that process?
2: That's right. OK. Um, Let's walk through that. Hendra virus in Australia is a textbook case. Most people have never heard of it. It's a very dangerous virus, but it doesn't spread from human to human well. So it hasn't caused epidemics or pandemics, but it does kill people. Here's what happens with Hendra virus. It lives in giant fruit bats in Australia, in Northern Northeastern Australia. Uh, And if you leave the fruit bats alone, you're safe from the virus. But humans have colonized Australia. We've brought in our livestock. We've brought in sheep and cows. We've brought in horses, not native to Australia. We've cut down forests where these fruit bats lived. And so now the fruit bats, having lost much of their habitat, are going to places where they can find fruit, like orchards, like city parks, closer to humans. They do that. Sometimes there are fig trees, for instance, human plant fig trees, maybe in a pasture. So here's how the first outbreak of Hendra began in 1994. A horse in a pasture got very sick. The horse was shading herself underneath a fig tree. Fruit bats were coming to the fig tree, they were eating the figs, they were dropping the fruit pulp, and they were dropping their feces in their urine onto the grass. The horse ate the grass, got infected with the virus, The horse trainer took her back to the stables where she was kept with two dozen other horses and they all started getting sick, foaming at the nostrils, foaming at the mouth, falling down, having seizures, terrible sickness, spreading this virus from one horse to another. Three men tried to take care of these horses, the horse trainer, a veterinarian and a stable hand, and two of them got sick with this virus. One of them died in hospital and the other one barely recovered. And the third one was the veterinarian and he's the one who told the story to me. So fruit bats are the reservoir host of this terrible virus, Hendra. Um, Horses are the amplifying host. It doesn't generally pass straight from bats into humans. It passes from bats into horses and horses get very sick. The virus explodes in horses, they can spread it from one horse to another. Humans come in to try and help and then humans get sick. But then humans so far have not been known to spread it from one human to another. So that's the particular ecology of the Hendra virus.
0: And you mentioned that bats are the reservoir host and that is is the case of probably COVID and other viruses. Many Mm -hmm. viruses have bats as the reservoir host. Why are bats uh, a a
2: reservoir host to many viruses? That's right. Hendra virus, Nipah virus in Malaysia and Bangladesh, SARS-1 from China 2003, they all have the reservoir host in bats. Marburg virus in Africa, probably Ebola virus, we're not sure, probably the COVID-19 virus. So the question is why bats? A couple of reasons. First of all, Bats seem to be overly represented as reservoir hosts, but bats are very, very diverse. There are 1400 species of bats. That's one in every five species of mammal. So if one in every five species of dangerous virus comes from bats, that's just proportional representation of their diversity. But they live a long time. They can live up to 30 years. They gather together, they roost together in dense aggregations. There might be 60,000 bats roosting together on the wall of a cave. Those are good circumstances for circulating a virus endlessly in a population of bats. They live a long time and they they gather close together, so the virus keeps going around from one bat to another. And they have immune systems that are less reactive to foreign elements, foreign molecules, foreign forms of life in their body than the immune systems of, of humans or of most mammals. Why are their immune systems less responsive? Possibly because they, they fly. They're the only truly flying mammal that puts enormous physiological stress on their bodies that releases certain kinds of molecules in their bodies, unstable free radical molecules. And if they had very sensitive immune systems, their bodies would be reacting to those molecules constantly and they would have autoimmune disease. So it seems, this is still somewhat uncertain, but it seems that over time, bats have evolved to have less responsive immune systems so that they don't have autoimmune dysfunctions all the time uh, in response to their physiological stress. And and one result of that is that they can carry viruses and their immune systems tend to ignore the viruses.
0: So then they don't get sick. You mentioned that Ebola virus, the the reservoir host hasn't been confirmed to be a bat, but there's been evidence that points to that. What is the evidence in that case?
2: Well, the evidence is uh, fragments of the Ebola virus genome. The Ebola virus is an RNA virus. So instead of having DNA, like we have for our genomes, it's got this other molecule that's related to DNA, RNA. It's a it's usually a single strand and not a double helix like the famous DNA double helix. So when you're looking for the reservoir host of a, of a virus, you, you, take, you take fecal samples, you take saliva samples, you take blood samples, and you perform a series of tests looking for evidence of the virus. For instance, uh, using PCR amplification of uh, particles of DNA or RNA. And then assaying those uh, using various tests to locate fragments of the viral genome, and that has been done. Fragments of the Ebola virus genome has been found have been found in giant fruit bats, but the the ultimate test is you take a sample from an animal, and then you grow virus, live virus in cells. You culture virus in the laboratory, and that proves that this virus has not only visited this particular animal, but has has lived in it and replicated in it, that you've gotten live virus from it, strongly, strongly suggests that um, the animal, whatever it is, is capable of carrying this virus. And that means reservoir host. And that form of evidence growing live Ebola virus from a sample of blood or tissue from a fruit bat, that hasn't been achieved. That's the missing evidence for the main strains, the main species of Ebola virus, including the most famous one that we think of when we think Ebola. There are actually, I think, six species of Ebola virus, but the one that's called simply Ebola virus is the the dangerous one that has caused the outbreaks that we know about.
0: And then there's other ones that you talk about in the book, Maybe I'll let the readers find out what those are. <laughs> but then and there's a
2: new one. There's a new one that I didn't even talk about in the book. There's a sixth species. I believe it is called Bombali. Bombali virus, but it is a, it is a type of Ebola virus.
0: Where where was that? Where ha, was that from?
2: Oh, good question. I uh, I'm not sure it was in Africa. It would be probably safe to say Africa, but I think it might. Uh, well, I, I better not say. I, I don't remember where Bambali virus comes from. Um, you could you could probably Google it and find out.
0: Because there's four out of five of the Ebola viruses that you talk about in the book are from Africa. That's correct. From the Philippines, but has been uh, tra- But tra- in in the cases you talk about, uh, went to these animal quarantine centers.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, you've done your homework.
0: So when you were investigating diseases and especially Ebola. Were you at all afraid for your health? For example, when you went on, uh, when you went on a, a research, an expedition to find Ebola in the remaining remaining chimpanzees in a forest in Africa, there was, there there could have been, um, there could have been monkeys that had the Ebola virus um, and that you, that might have transmitted it to you. Were you afraid about, for your health?
2: Uh, No, I wasn't because I was with scientists who were very expert. I knew they loved life as well as loving their work and that they would take the appropriate precautions. So, I trusted them. Uh, I described Dr. Billy Karish, who was the one that I went to the Congo with. We were actually looking for trying to get blood samples, not from chimpanzees, but from gorillas in an area of, of the Congo. And uh, Billy Karish is a wonderful fellow. I know him well. I trust him. He's very professional. So my my approach is always, I'll go wherever Billy is going to go. But I will let him handle the needles and, and the blood, and I will stand four feet behind him and scribble notes in my notebook and try not to let him hand me anything sharp or bloody.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so because of evolutionary similarities between monkeys, apes, chimpanzees, and other monkey-like animals and humans, can monkeys be infected by a, diz- a disease along with humans?
2: Yes, yes, it's possible. We can get, uh, and, and and it happens. There is a, a terrible virus called uh, herpes B, if I recall correctly, and it sometimes is carried in macaques, which is a, a kind of a large monkey, um, kind, one of the kinds that are, are used for medical research. So there are these colonies of people might have 300 or 400 macaques in a in a fenced compound uh, for research purposes or breeding them for medical research. And if they are carrying this particular virus, herpes B, that can be very, very dangerous if one of them, for instance, bites a human, or if a human takes a blood sample and then she pokes herself with a needle or something like that. Um, There are others, even HIV, HIV HIV-1, the AIDS pandemic virus came from a chimpanzee, but, Uh, The chimpanzee probably got it from a monkey so that it carries fragments of lineage, um, the virus that shows its history as a monkey infecting virus uh, that then became a chimpanzee infecting virus that then became a human infecting virus. So yeah, we're related to the monkeys and even more closely related to the great apes, that is chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, um, and a couple of other species. We're, those are our closest closest relatives on the planet. Bonobos, of course, the, the quote-unquote pygmy chimpanzees, are also closely related to us.
0: Right. If my listeners are not informed about Ebola, it, the book, um, and if you read the book, you can see this too, but some of these, these small towns in Africa, people were, were eating these dead chimpanzees, which were carrying Ebola. Is that the case with Ebola? Uh, did the the reservoir host infect infect chimpanzees? And because of, of evolutionary similarities, we also are susceptible to this virus? Yes,
2: yes, that's correct. That's one of the interesting things about Ebola is that we know that chimpanzees and gorillas cannot be the reservoir hosts of Ebola because they die from Ebola. Um, the, the scientists that I know have done research on this. They have found um, areas where uh, entire populations of gorillas have disappeared at the same time that um, that an Ebola outbreak has occurred among humans in a nearby village. And Ebola outbreaks have been traced to a chimpanzee carcass that was found in the forest by people who were foraging for meat. Maybe they were hunting chim- live chimpanzees for meat. They found a dead chimpanzee, took it back, scavenged that, um, people ate it and got sick with Ebola. And of course, why you know why would somebody scavenge a dead chimpanzee? Well, it's because people need protein, and uh, these these very small remote villages in um, the forests of Central Africa uh, they don't have the luxury of uh, of pork and beef or even chickens. Uh, they need protein, and so they hunt wild animals for food. And sometimes those wild animals are chimpanzees, and it's very very bad for chimpanzees and it's very dangerous for people
0: yeah Uh, and in the book one of the outbreaks of ebola in in a small african um village the scavengers were scavenging for a porcupine but then they found a dead dead uh chimpanzee that happened to have ebola and then they mistakenly Ate it, but I mean, especially in that that part of the world where, of course, there's no supermarkets. They they need that that meat. They need the food to get on with their day. And one of the weird things about Ebola is that even there's there's been multiple outbreaks with with these these Ebola strains, and scientists have gone out and tested many many different animals, thousands of animals for Ebola and Ebola uh, antibodies, but they haven't found any except for uh, some bats. So why do viruses lay dormant for long periods of time and why do they hide and where do they hide?
2: Well, Probably the first answer to that is that we don't know. Um, there's a lot of things that we still don't know about particular viruses. We know, we know this, that viruses have to live in cellular creatures, viruses are not cellular. Viruses are genetic parasites that can only replicate inside the cells of other creatures using the cell machinery that creates proteins to produce copies of themselves. So they hijack the machinery that's found in cells of animals, plants, fungi, other cellular creatures. All species of animals, plants, and fungi probably carry their own unique viruses. Um, So I mentioned 1400 species of bat, maybe um, 6,000 or 7,000 species of mammals altogether. All of them carry unique viruses. Rodents, every species of rodent probably carries unique viruses. We are only scratching the surface now of what some scientists call the virosphere or the virome, uh, this world of viruses. And we need to learn more about it, learn about where they live, which ones might be dangerous to humans, which ones aren't. I have a piece coming out in National Geographic in a month or so that's about viral evolution, the origins of viruses, the role they have played in evolutionary history on Earth and the fact that viruses, besides doing some bad things in terms of human health, they have done some very interesting, important and good things in the course of evolution. Viruses have carried genetic variation from one kind of creature to another. Viruses may help account for some of the major transitions in evolution. There are even parts of the human body, the human physiology that couldn't work if we hadn't been infected by viruses that have been incorporated into our own genome. That's not in Spillover, but that's in my more recent book, The Tangled Tree, which is about um, a phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer. Genes moving sideways from one form of life into another. How can that happen? Well, viruses are part of, the, part of the answer. Viruses sometimes carry genes sideways from one form of life to another. And sometimes those genes become very useful to the receiving host.
0: And in your book, you talk about non-zoonotic diseases. There's also those one of these is smallpox. What are the origins of these? How did we get these?
2: Where, right, well, how- in the in the narrow sense, there are infectious diseases that are non-zoonotic. 70% of human infectious diseases, roughly 70%, are zoonotic. Um, they have come recently from wild animals and gotten into humans, or they come repeatedly from wild animals and get into humans. The other 30% are infections that humans suffer, and as far as we know, only humans suffer. For instance, smallpox, for instance, measles, for instance, polio. Those are all viruses that are unique to humans, but they're related to other kinds of viruses. So in the longer term, I mean, what it means is that um, these quote-unquote non-zoonotic viruses, they have a longer history with humans, a history so long that we don't know when they're ancestral form spilled over from some wild animal, first into humans. But humans, everything comes from somewhere, as I say in the book. Um, And we're a relatively young species. So the viruses that we carry, even the viruses that are now unique to us, had to come from somewhere else in early human history. So measles came from probably a virus that infected, uh, wild ungulates like, uh, like antelopes, hartebeasts and things in Africa called rinderpest. That, that might have been uh, the ancestor or it might have been a cousin to measles and they share an ancestor, another kind of virus. Likewise with polio and smallpox, uh, smallpox is related to cowpox. So again, a kind of pox virus that naturally infected um, bovine wild animals even before we domesticated bovines to make them cattle, to make them beef. All of these viruses have a long history, a long history in humans, but a history before that where they are descended from some kind of a, a virus in a wild animal. Everything comes from somewhere.
0: Part three in the book. So
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> you also talk about other other kinds of pathogens, those five other kinds of pathogens that's bacteria, fungi, protozoa, worms, and prions, and that's besides viruses. What are these pathogens and what do they do?
2: Well, that's a big question, Um, but very briefly, bacteria are cellular creatures, single-celled creatures, simple cells, and they infect humans and make us sick. You know, Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, pneumonia, Bacterial diseases, Um, bubonic plague was a bacterial, is a bacterial disease. Fungi, we can all get infected by fungi. There are certain kinds of fungi that infect humans. Let's see, worms, you know, people get worms. Uh, They're ringworm and there are other kinds of tiny worms, intestinal worms, uh, tapeworms can be infections of humans. Again, they're parasitic forms. And what does that leave? Prions or prions which are the most peculiar of all. And what they are are folded proteins. Uh, You start with a particular long protein and proteins tend to fold themselves. And if they fold themselves in the wrong way, they become dysfunctional. And a prion is a protein that has folded itself in the wrong way that causes other molecules of the same proton to fold in the same wrong way, just like a set of dominoes, a line of dominoes falling over. So suddenly all these proteins are going snap, 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 folding in the wrong way. And if that protein is one of the important proteins in your brain, then it gives you a terrible disease and eventually will kill you. Kuru disease is the first one of these that was discovered. Mad cow disease, chronic wasting disease is a prion disease. So those are the different kinds of infectious diseases.
0: You say that viruses are the most problematic kind of pathogens that we that we know why is that?
2: Viruses are the most problematic I would say because there are so many kinds of them and because they have the capacity to spread so quickly from human to human. I mean this COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. You know, it spreads it spreads on a, a spoken word. It spreads on a song. Uh, it spreads on a cough. It can linger in a room and infect people. Uh, prions don't do that. Uh, bacteria don't do that, generally. Worms don't do that. I forget what the other one was. <laughs> uh, but uh, viruses are uniquely, uh, uniquely diverse, uniquely ingenious, uniquely dangerous to humans. Um, and we don't have antibiotics to use against viruses. Antibiotics are a class of drugs that work against bacteria, often by functioning to restrict the way that they build their cell walls. Viruses don't have the same kind of cell walls. They're completely immune to antibiotics. So any anytime somebody says, well, you know, my child has an ear infection, a mother takes the child to the doctor, the doctor says, well, this is a virus the mother or the father might say, well, give him some antibiotics, he's in pain. Um, and the doctor has to make the difficult explanation that antibiotics are useless if this is a virus. That's like saying, I'm gonna use, um, I'm gonna use a flashlight to hose dirt off of my driveway. You know, you use, a, you use a hose to hose dirt off your driveway, that's using antibiotics against bacteria. But if it's a virus that's on your driveway, and you use antibiotics. That's like pointing a flashlight at the dirt on your driveway. The dirt doesn't care. The dirt's not going anywhere. That's viruses.
0: Are there any pathogens that are uncurable, um, like that we can't find a vaccine for, or we can't find a treatment for?
2: Well, uh, let's see. That's a, that's a good question. We can't find a vaccine for HIV. It's been 40 years since the the HIV pandemic was recognized, and we still don't have a vaccine. Um, That's a very tricky and difficult virus, and there are reasons why we don't have a vaccine, but we do have treatments for it now. If people are lucky enough to have access to those treatments, they can live long and productive lives, even though they're HIV positive. So we have dealt with that pretty well in terms of discovery, but we haven't dealt with it well in terms of distributing those medicines to the, all the people in the world who need them. Most of the people who are still dying of, of AIDS are poor people in Africa, and they don't have access to those drugs. So that's, that's our big problem. It's not that we don't, have, um, we don't have the science, we don't have the therapies, we don't have the drugs for these diseases. What we don't have is the ability and the will to get them to all the people who need them.
0: And there was a, this new COVID vaccine from both Moderna and Pfizer. They both use an RNA code to get rid of the virus. Mm-hmm. And this, these are the first vaccines that have been approved in the United States that use this kind of technology. Could this mean groundbreaking uh, uh, discoveries in the future for vaccination?
2: Well, I think so, yes. Scientists have been working on the idea of um, a messenger RNA, mRNA um, vaccine for some years, and now they have applied that um, to the, both of the vaccines that are, have come from Pfizer and Moderna. It seems to me very promising. I haven't researched that just a whole lot yet. I don't know too much uh, about that, probably don't know more than the average person who's reading good newspaper stories and stories online about it but it seems to me very promising this this mRNA approach uh, and what we hope is that we can uh, we can have core vir- viral vaccines we can have platform viral vaccines for different groups of viruses say for the coronaviruses or for the Ebola viruses even for the influenza viruses and then when a new virus emerges, we can adapt, well, we do that already with influenza viruses, we adapt um, a new virus to a new strain of influenza very quickly, usually every, every spring, and it's ready then in the northern autumn for flu season. We need to do that with coronaviruses too, because this is not going to be the last coronavirus that gets into us.
0: Right, and I, uh, I'm sorry that I, I, I said RNA instead of mRNA. So lastly, before we end our discussion, there is a theory that you float in the book that viruses may not be alive. Tell me more.
2: Well, this is something I addressed in this new article that's coming from National Geographic on the origin, the ultimate origin of viruses. Part of that um, involves the question of whether or not viruses are alive. Some people say that they're not, they're these, just these mechanistic things. Other people say, yes, they are a life form and we should put them somewhere on the tree of life. I mentioned my more recent book, The Tangled Tree. What that's about is the tree of life and the way that molecular investigations of genomes have redrawn the tree of life. But that tree still has no place on it for viruses. People haven't figured out where to put viruses. So they're still arguing about this whether viruses are alive or not. And if they are alive in some sense, where do they belong on the tree of life? Where did they come from? It's all very interesting stuff, pretty complicated. Uh, you know, I wrote a long piece for this National Geographic story uh, and barely scratched the surface. I can, I can only scratch the surface of that here. Um, but I think that the question of whether or not viruses are alive is mostly a semantic and philosophical question and not a scientific question. It depends on how you define life. Um, so you can define it in certain ways, but one of the most interesting scientists I talked to in the course of doing this was a, um, a fellow named Patrick fortier a, a very senior scientist in France, and he and he has developed a, a notion of the viral cell. Um, and that is that the real identity of the virus is not the little virus particle that, that flies around on someone's cough and gets in somebody's throat and infects themselves. The real viral entity is the infected cell itself. When the virus has entered the cell of a host creature and is using that cell's machinery to make copies of itself, that is the living virus, the viral cell, and it is alive during that period of its life cycle.
0: Well, David Quammen, thank you so much for joining me on News Nerds.
2: You're very welcome, Ezra. I enjoyed talking with you. Good luck with this, and uh, best of luck to you, fella.
0: That was David Quammen. He is the author of numerous works, including the book Spillover, which we talked about in this interview. Let's now go to our Geographical Location Challenge. And we have many new countries joining the International Challenge, but the United States is still in first place with 96% of all news nerds listeners. Then with 2%, we have Norway. The following countries all have less than 1% of news nerds listeners. Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, Bosnia and Herzegovina, France, the Philippines and Switzerland. And now let's go to the United States challenge. With 16%, we have the state of Virginia, which takes first place. Now with second place, we have Ohio with 12% of News Nerds listeners. And with third place, two runners up, Washington and California. Both of them have four percent of all news nerds listeners. And that's it for this geographical location challenge. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. Thank you so much to David Quammen. You heard from him today. He is a science writer and works for National Geographic. He talked to me about his book, Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. You can find David Quammen on social media and on his website, davidquammen.com. That's davidquammen.com. You also heard from me, Ezra Graham. I was your host for this week's episode of News Nerds. News Nerds can be found on the web at newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast. There you can subscribe to our mailing list, listen to past episodes of News Nerds, News nerds or contact us. When you subscribe to our mailing list, you get updates whenever we publish a new episode of News Nerds. You can also listen to News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. That really does help our ratings. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of News Nerds. Until then, bye-bye.